Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. This week, as we mark the 51st annual Earth Day, we're looking at how science and technology can help us understand and respond to ecological challenges worldwide. First, we'll start close to home with the state of Ohio's ongoing efforts to reduce and eliminate harmful algal blooms on Lake Erie caused, for the most part, by phosphorus runoff from farmers' fields. Lake Erie Commission Executive Director Joy Molinax. The algae is a problem because it can actually produce toxins. And so at a certain point, the, the toxins can become significant enough that they create hazards for swimmers and people who come into contact with the water. So is the lake any kind of a significant source of drinking water for communities in Northeast Ohio? And is that an issue, too, with regard to the toxins? Lake Erie is the water source for nearly 3 million Ohioans. So it is most definitely an issue. And so the Ohio EPA has been working collaboratively with those communities that use Lake Erie as their drinking water source to make sure that they're doing sufficient monitoring throughout the harmful algal bloom season to deal with managing the water and making sure that the toxins are not in their finished water that goes into people's taps. With that in mind, the state has been screening proposals over the past six months from companies that believe they have what it takes to help solve the problem. Some include an automated drainage water management system for cropland, a two-stage wastewater phosphorus recovery process, flotation devices that separate liquids from solids, and a phosphorus binding agent that can be applied to soil. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. What's next is an in-depth evaluation of how well the 10 proposals initially selected for consideration actually work. In Indiana, scientists at Purdue University have created what they say is the whitest white paint ever, which reflects 98% of sunlight. ReviewGeek.com reports research shows it cools surfaces by 4.5 degrees Celsius below the ambient temperature, even on very sunny days. Now, they're hoping that one day it can be used on the roofs and homes of businesses, eliminating the need for air conditioning and the carbon emissions that come from it. In Cleveland, they're working on more low-tech solutions. The Cuyahoga Soil and Water Conservation District's Relief Project is dedicated to planting more trees, particularly in urban areas where they say the tree canopy is lower than the recommended 40%. Health benefits include cleaner air, moderating temperatures, shade and shelter that reduce energy use, and stormwater management. Speaking of trees, thousands of them went up in smoke out west last year as a record number of wildfires hit a number of states, including Washington, Oregon, and California. And this year likely will bring more of the same. CBS News meteorologist Jeff Baradelli tells us why. The winter wet season has come and gone in the western U.S., and it was disappointing to say the least. Much of the southwest in California received less than 50% 
of their normal rainfall. Now, this adds insult to injury because it perpetuates a super dry stretch where most parts of the Great Basin and the Southwest U.S. had one of their driest and hottest summers on record in 2020. Right now, 40% of the West is under extreme or exceptional drought conditions. Snowpack is below normal. And as a result, the Colorado River is forecast to yield less than half of its normal water flow. But this year's water woes are part of a much longer-term issue. Soil moisture content is the lowest it's been in 120 years. Lake Mead, which is on the Nevada-Arizona border, is only at 40% of its capacity. And the West is in what scientists call a mega drought, the second worst in 1,200 years. President Biden assembled world leaders virtually this week to discuss how to fight climate change. And part of that is a pledge to cut U.S. greenhouse gas pollution by at least 50 percent by 2030, which is an aggressive target that would require sweeping changes to America's energy and transportation sectors. CBS News correspondent Steve Dorsey has more. The Biden administration says it will include topics like efforts to fight deforestation and the loss of wetlands and promote sustainable agriculture. The White House has promised more action on climate change as it prepares to take part in a United Nations-led event in Glasgow, Scotland in November on new global measures needed to combat global warming. Steve Dorsey, CBS News, the White House. But climate change is such a big topic. What does it really mean and how does it all work? I talked to a climate change expert from our area, Dr. Cameron Lee, who's an associate professor at Kent State University. But when I started out our conversation with a question about how climate change might lead to mass migration events like the Dust Bowl of the early 1930s, what I found out is that like many people, I had made the mistake of thinking that weather and climate are the same thing. They're not. Here's why. You know, the Dust Bowl wasn't really a climate change. It was more of, I guess, a localized, especially in the United States, anomaly, I guess, that was short-lived. So kind of need to stress those differences. And when you look at the overall temperature records across the world, the 1930s really don't even show up. It was in the United States that we had a lot of those very warm and very dry years in the early 1930s. So then that's interesting to me because when I think of something like climate change, I thought of like a cataclysmic event like the Dust Bowl. One of the big misunderstandings about climate change is, you know, I get it as well from a lot of my relatives, is people kind of they have this misunderstanding between weather and climate, right? And they they kind of confuse the two where, you know, they think that climate and weather are the same. And, you know, weather is what you're experiencing in your location at any particular time. And it's, it can be highly variable, right? But the climate is kind of more or less what you expect the weather to be. And over long periods of time, the climate is actually extremely stable. And so if you have even the slight changes that we have had of one degree Fahrenheit or so over the last century and the projected changes of one, two, possibly up to four degrees Celsius by the end of this current century, those are dramatic changes that people really have not uh, lived through before. And so 
the types of impacts that can come out of that are quite dramatic, and they do include wildfires. Did you want to get into wildfires specifically? Well, sure. I wanted to look at climate change kind of overall and then how it's going to affect us here in the U.S., and certainly wildfires is part of it. So in terms of wildfires, there's a lot of things that climate change is going to impact that can lead to wildfires, right? So most often with climate change, we hear about temperature changes, right? Global warming is an average change in the global temperature. Right. But there's a lot of kind of cascading impacts from a change in temperature that you get as well. With a change in temperature, you get changes in evaporation rates, and that can change things like soil moisture. It can change the amount of precipitation that you get. It can also change circulation patterns and a variety of different things. And so climate change is really quite a bit more than just a change in temperature. So with wildfires, for example, we're expecting changes in rainfall amounts, changes in wind speeds, possibly also changes in lightning strikes, which are one of the ways in which a lot of natural fires start. So in locations such as Nevada, locations such as Alaska, where there are fewer people to ignite the fires, they're started more often by lightning. And in some studies, it's been suggested that we could get an increase in lightning strikes over more northern regions, such as North America and Siberia and stuff like that, that aren't currently all that well populated. We're also expecting stronger winds into the future. Um, The wind speed has increased dramatically pretty much across the globe over the last decade or so, especially in the western parts of the United States. Other meteorological variables, such as extreme temperature events, extreme droughts, have also increased. And it's kind of these combinatorial events, as I call them, where it's not just hot weather or just dry weather, but hot and dry weather occurring together. Those particular types of events have also increased dramatically and are expected to continue to increase as we move into the future. You mentioned that certainly you've had conversations with people in your family. I know I have, too, about climate change. And there seems to be a reticence on the part of some people to believe that it's a real thing. And if it is a real thing, maybe it's just kind of a passing situation and it won't have any long-term effects. So I guess the question is twofold for me. One, if the climate is changing, will it just snap back eventually to where it has been? Or is this something that's going to be with us for a long time? And then I guess the final part of that question is, has this occurred before, at least in memorable history, at least when history was written down? Is this something that's brand new to our century, for example? This is new to our century. This has not been the type of climate changes that we are seeing, especially as fast as they are going, has never occurred in recorded history. The best analog to something like this is some 12,000, 13,000 years ago or so, there's a period called the Younger Dryas period. For natural reasons, uh, we saw some pretty dramatic changes in the climate where we went back to kind of like an ice age-like climate in certain parts of the northern hemisphere for roughly about a thousand years or so, and then it quickly kind of snapped back into a warmer type of climate. But even those changes didn't happen as fast as what we are seeing now since roughly the Industrial Revolution of the late 1800s the type of dramatic changes in temperature. And so this is unprecedented in modern history by far. 
Um, in terms of it snapping back, uh, the overall trend is upwards due to the release of greenhouse gases by burning fossil fuels by human beings. This is something that is often in I guess the political arena and the public arena, it seems like it's a debate, but in the scientific arena, it's close to scientific fact as we have. Some 98% of climate scientists are in agreement that climate change is happening and that it is caused by human emissions of burning fossil fuels, causing carbon dioxide, methane, etc., to go up into the atmosphere, which leads to warming. And so this overall trend is upwards, and we're not expecting it to snap back without some type of mitigation of us releasing fossil fuels into the environment. And even after we stop doing that, there is this kind of long residence time of the carbon dioxide that we have released into the environment that will continue to warm our climate for decades, if not centuries afterwards, and unless we actually start pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere quite readily. And you said that it's more than just lightning strikes. It's more than just wildfires, et cetera. It has to do with, for example, soil moisture. Obviously, all that can affect how we grow food, where we grow food, whether there's going to be famines, whether people are going to be able to continue to live in certain parts of the country. So what kind of mitigation strategies can we adopt in order for us to adapt to these kinds of changes? In terms of kind of solving the climate change issue, there's two branches that are kind of, I guess, necessary, and they're what we call mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation being preventing climate change or more serious climate change from happening in the first place, and then adaptation, which is the fact that there's going to be some types of climate changes and we need to adapt to those changes that are quite frankly, already here, but will um, continue to get worse in the future. In terms of mitigation, there's a variety of different you know, things an individual can do. I mean, you can be you know, more energy efficient is one of the biggest things. Things such as changing all your light bulbs to LEDs, which only use like one-tenth the energy and last quite a bit longer than incandescent light bulbs is going to save you money because you're not going to you know, use as much energy. Using less energy is going to burn less fossil fuels buying energy-efficient appliances, energy-efficient cars, fuel-efficient cars, stuff like that. But the problem is so big that individual choices are only going to help if they happen in mass, right? I mean, if there's literally millions and millions of people that are all making these individual choices to be more energy-efficient, this is the only way that we're really going to solve this climate issue. And in order to do that, we need people to be incentivized to do that. And often that involves money. And so there's a couple of, if you kind of wanted to get into the policy side of this, I'm not sure if that's where you were going, but we could talk about kind of the policy tools that are available in order to try to do that. I guess I was looking beyond policy to more practical things like if it's harder to grow food in California, then what would people in Iowa need to do? Or you know what I mean? Like, how would we Mm -hmm. need to make changes to our system for people to be able to continue to live, as opposed to just what politics are going to do about it? Yeah, so adapting to the changes um, is, is kind of more, you know, along the lines of what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are a variety of things that you can kind of adapt to, right? So, 
growing certain crops in the areas that they're being grown in now. Um, if the climate changes enough, they just won't be able to grow there. And so changing, you know, if you're a farmer in one place, then you might need to change the type of crop that you were growing. But it's not that simple, right? Because let's say that you're growing a crop that makes you, you know, quite a bit of money and makes your farm profitable. Well, you can't just switch to another crop because it might not make your farm profitable, right? So there are going to be certain people that will now be able to grow that crop that you aren't able to grow, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can just readily switch and, you know, make a living off of it. And so those people might need to find hybrid types of seeds of the same crop that they're using that are a little bit more tolerant to the new climate or try to switch crops and make it worth their while. I wouldn't say that there's a, you mentioned California and Iowa, I wouldn't say there's probably a very good trade-off between those two areas just because they grow such different things. But maybe like Southern California, Northern California is more along the lines of where we would see the trade-off. But for the Midwestern states, I mean, certain locations that grow wheat now because of their climate, maybe they can grow corn uh, in the future or something like that, right? So, yeah, those are some of the ways in which for our food supply, we might be able to adapt. There are other things that are going to be harder to change. One of the biggest, I guess, issues with climate change that you often hear in the same breath is sea level rise. And there are hundreds of millions of people across the globe. And in the United States, there are tens of millions of people that live really close to the coast. And with even a small amount of sea level rise, you can see their homes becoming inundated. Um, and these people are going to have to move somewhere, right? They're not just going to say, oh, well, I guess, you know, I guess my house is underwater and I have to live in this type of a house now. They're going to have to move somewhere and this is going to cause some migration issues. But we're already starting to see that in some areas, such as along the east coast of the United States. I know Norfolk, Virginia is one of the areas that get what are called nuisance floods or sunny day floods. People built their houses in an area that was that wasn't inundated. You know, they didn't build their house in an area that was subjected to you know high tide flooding every day or every week or something like that. They built in an area that they thought was far enough away. But now, due to the background rise in sea level. Even on days where you have sunny skies, you're not seeing a storm or anything like that, you can have high tides that reach a level that inundates their house. And then this is known as a nuisance flood or a sunny day flood, and they can be particularly damaging. So we're going to see migrations because of that as well. So obviously there's going to be a lot of social change and a lot of economic impact as we move forward. If you had to advise on what the best direction to go then would be, I guess people need to have an open mind to it, right? A lot of people just don't have an open mind. They don't believe it's happening. Yeah, I'd say in the general public, there's a huge partisan political divide in terms of believing that it's happening and not believing it's happening. And I think it comes down to where people are getting their information from. But overall, in the U.S., I'd say it's probably an increasing trend in toward people knowing the science and knowing that it is happening, but it's still not where it's at in a lot of other countries. And so, yeah, getting people to realize that it is an issue is something that we need to do a better job of because it's these people that are going to be, quite frankly, voting for the people that are going to be able to kind of help with the issue, right? Like I said, it's not one individual that's going to be able to solve the problem, but it's people doing it in mass. And in order to be able to get people to do it in mass, you need to incentivize that, and that's going to take policy. 
And so we need to, you know, vote people into office that have climate change at the top of their agenda. Right, because, you know, I kind of wanted to stay a little bit away from politics, but realistically speaking, let's say that the ocean level rises a lot on all of our coasts. That's going to be millions of people who are going to need someplace else to live. And Mm -hmm. they aren't necessarily going to be able to afford to move somewhere else on their own or build a new house somewhere more inland on their own. They're going to be demanding probably some action from the government. And then what's this going to do to insurance companies? Insurance companies might just wind up closing shops. They're going to be inundated with requests for money for houses that are no longer habitable. Yeah. When you start seeing all of these kind of cascading impacts, I call them at the beginning of, you know, it's more than just a temperature rise, right? You just keep asking then what happens, then what happens, then what happens, right? Now we're three degrees removed from a temperature rise. We're talking about temperature rise, sea level rise, migration, houses, and now insurance companies, right? And so, yeah, insurance companies um, are really starting to take, not starting, they've actually kind of been at the forefront of taking climate change into consideration because in terms of planning, insurance companies have kind of one of the longest, especially um, property insurance, one of kind of the longest perspectives that they have to take for future planning. They have to keep in mind the next several decades, if not longer. And so especially what are called reinsurance companies, these are the companies that insure the main insurance companies. They have been taking climate change into consideration for a very long time. And yeah, some companies might have so many claims that they will have to close up shop. A lot of areas that are subjected to floods, it's under the uh, federal uh, flood insurance program. So that'd be something that would be a more of a, a federal issue, I guess, as opposed to a, a private insurance company issue. That was applied climatology professor Dr. Cameron Lee from Kent State University. So now that we've heard about the breathtaking depth and breadth of the problem, let's talk about a possible tech solution. Once again, we go to CBS meteorologist and climate specialist Jeff Baradelli with a report on a controversial solution called carbon capture, which actually pulls carbon back out of the atmosphere. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says to stay at a safe level of warming, carbon capture technology must be at least part of the mix. Dr. Julio Friedman agrees. He's a carbon capture expert from Columbia University and says transitioning to renewables won't get us quite far enough. Steel, cement, and food is about 20% of the problem. There's just no way to get to zero on that stuff today. You can pick up everything off your floor, but that doesn't mean your floor is clean. You still have to vacuum it afterwards. This is the vacuuming up step. But many in the climate community fear it may give society an excuse to keep burning fossil fuels, and they doubt its effectiveness. We emit 1,500 times the amount of carbon that we can effectively capture in a year. Not to mention, it's very expensive. Friedman's answer? Solar electricity in 2002 was expensive, not mass-produced. And then there was this set of policy and innovation pushes that dropped the price and helped commercialization. Jeff Berardelli, CBS News. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590 WAKR and WAKR.net.